When Julie Burkhardt got woken up by her phone one spring morning last year, she wasn't exactly expecting good news. Yeah, I, I knew it was going to be a problem. That is for sure. It was 5.30 in the morning. The sun was just rising. It was her contractor on the line. Julie was getting ready to open up a new medical clinic in Casper, Wyoming. Workers were putting the finishing touches on the place. What went through my head um, as I was answering that call was like, oh, you know, maybe we had a pipe burst or, you know, something wrong with the electrical, you know, something that could be easily fixed. And what he said to me, he said, the Calvary is here. And I said, what? And he said, the building's on fire. He said, you know, can you get down here? When Julie arrived, she saw the structure was still standing at least. But the windows on one side had been busted out because of the heat. The sheetrock was toast. In the end, the fire did around $300,000 worth of damage. The grand opening Julie had been picturing, it was not going to happen. This is the point where I need to explain exactly what kind of clinic Julie was running here. An abortion clinic. Julie's run abortion clinics all over the country. For years, she worked with George Tiller, the Kansas doctor who was murdered by an anti-abortion zealot. Julie reopened Tiller's clinic after he was assassinated. This clinic in Wyoming, it was set to be the lone full-service abortion provider in the whole state. Given all that, It wasn't like a little fire was going to stop her, even if this fire was meant to send a message. At what point did you realize this wasn't an accident, just something that happened, like an electrical fire? Oh, I think immediately. I think once our contractor told me about it on the phone, you know, I knew. Yeah, I knew. Today on the show... Julie is just one of many abortion providers who's faced violent threats in the wake of the Supreme Court upending reproductive rights in this country. But she won't stop doing this work. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Over the years, Julie Burkhart has become someone who's known for opening up abortion clinics in difficult, even hostile, places. But I wondered how someone even gets into that line of work. So I asked her to take me back, way back. It turns out she started working in abortion clinics while she was in college, just as a summer job in Wichita, Kansas. And she stuck with it. What did you learn while you were there? What were you doing? Oh, goodness. Well, I really got to do a little bit of everything. Um, My main job was, you know, scheduling patients and uh, doing check-in when we had clinic days. But then I got to the point where 
I learned how to do our consultations. I learned how to do lab, autoclaving, room turnover. Oh, you did everything. Yeah, I learned, you know, people think, oh, working in an abortion clinic, how could you ever have fun? But still to this day, it's one of the best jobs I ever had. And um, and we, we had a lot of fun. You were working in abortion clinics in Kansas right around the time that the Summer of Mercy took place, right? This was this summer, I think it was 1991? 1991, yep. And a number of evangelical activists basically decided to descend on Wichita and block access to clinics, just make themselves known. 25,000 people descended on Wichita yesterday for one of the largest anti-abortion rallies ever held. Ladies and gentlemen, as I stand here before this tremendous crowd today, I tell you that there is a moral imperative for all of us to defend the rights of the unborn child. Can you just describe what that was like? Oh, um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is mayhem. I mean, there were just thousands and thousands of protesters it was just infuriating the strategies that they used. We had people, you know, chained, you locked to our building. Let it live. Please let it live. Your choice, the choice is death. That's the choice. The other was life. Somebody would love your baby. And, you know, when they would commit an illegal act, you know, one of their strategies in order to take up the you know police time in order to and to make sure we were closed longer they would take baby steps um, or they would go limp and make law enforcement carry them to the bus or the truck sir you are under arrest for loitering please roll off to your stomach did you ever talk to them no not really my approach was to not talk to them because i didn't feel that it was going to solve anything on a global scale. But I do remember when there was one anti-choice woman who uh, was really in my face one day. And I do remember turning around and asking her, um, and I hope this isn't inappropriate, but asking her if she would like for me to take a pregnancy test right there on the sidewalk for her. <laughs> but that, that was about the only engagement I had with folks. Was it a relief when the protesters went away? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's always a relief when you don't have people standing outside of your build, building, um, you know, yelling at patients coming in, you know, belittling them, shaming them. Um, so yes, when no one's at the building, it's, it's quite lovely. It feels uh, rather freeing. Did you feel like it was a warning, though, that like after this summer of mercy demonstration, like, huh, is this what it's going to be like now? I, I don't know. I think we were still under the impression that, oh, they're going to have their show this summer. And then, you know, things can get a bit back to normal. But they never did. Julie kept working in reproductive rights after that summer, eventually focusing on strategy and communications. A decade later, she met Dr. George Tiller. Tiller was an abortion provider in Kansas, maybe the best-known abortion provider in that state. That was because he specialized in performing abortions later in pregnancy, 
which made him a target. Bill O'Reilly, for instance, frequently referred to him as Tiller the Baby Killer. The bill was introduced because of the notorious Tiller the Baby Killer case, where Dr. George Tiller destroys fetuses for just about any reason right up until the birth date for $5,000. No Julie became Tiller's spokesperson, as well as his legislative and political director. By this point, his clinic had already been bombed and he'd survived an assassination attempt. But despite all that, Julie says, his offices were warm and welcoming. One of my favorite memories of his clinic, there were many spaces in the clinic that had framed letters from former patients. And I just took great joy in just being able to read those. And, you know, they were there for other people to read, especially, you know, patients coming in who might be a little bit nervous, but, but people just expressing their gratitude and love for him and feeling like they got their lives back. I imagine it would make you feel less alone as a patient. Yeah, kind of surrounded by those letters. Yeah. Was violence something you worried about working with Dr. Tiller? I know that there had been an assassination attempt against him, so clearly that was in his mind. Mm -hmm. Was it in yours as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I walked into his office for a meeting and his bulletproof vest was on the couch. He just wore it regularly? Yes, yes. He had an armored vehicle, um, which I um, drove once, which was kind of a comedy of errors anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, but he drove around in a bulletproof vehicle. You know, the, the fact that he didn't go out and eat at restaurants freely and he had safe places where he could go to socialize, the fact that he lived in a gated community, you know, so there was worry. Do you remember finding out about his death? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, there are certain things that are seared into your brain. Yeah, I just never will forget that day. Yeah, it was 2009, right? Yes, uh -huh. May 31st, 2009. You were in Washington, is my understanding. Yes, I was in Washington, D.C. I was at a meeting. We'd gone out on a morning break. And I will never forget how beautiful it was outside. You know, it was one of those crisp spring mornings. Um, you know, we go back in, we continue meeting, and we were just getting ready to take our lunch break then. My phone started vibrating and vibrating. And, um, you know, my first thought was maybe something's happened to my daughter. So I better, you know, see what, like, who's trying to get a hold of me. Um, but yeah, it wasn't my husband. It wasn't my daughter, thank goodness. Um, but it was, you know, people trying to get a hold of me, you know, to tell me that he'd been assassinated. Late-term abortion Dr. George Tiller has been gunned down during services at his church in Wichita, Kansas. Tiller's attorney says he was shot as he served as an usher during Sunday morning services at Reformation Lutheran Church. He says Tiller's wife was in the choir at the time. You've talked about how this was like the one moment you've had where you had to step back and reconsider what you were doing, which was working in the reproductive rights space. And particularly in regions of the country where reproductive rights aren't getting as much support. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? 
that thought? Like, what was that thought? How did you deal with it? You know, I think not only my concern, but, you know, everybody in the movement was, you know, is this now going to be a trend, uh, which we had seen previously in the 90s, uh, where, you know, we had a number of people assassinated or, and I, I just remember thinking a lot about what am I really willing to sacrifice? Can I sacrifice my life? Am I okay with that? You know, and that that's a heavy question to ask, you know, of people, anyone. I kind of wonder if you could tap yourself on the shoulder now and say to, you know, you back in 2009, in like 10 years, a little bit more, you will not only have reopened Dr. Tiller's clinic, you'll be opening clinics elsewhere too. This is going to be your thing. Would you have believed yourself? Oh, no. <laughs> I was scared to death. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think also on the other hand, I wanted a way to honor Dr. Tiller and to honor all the other people who had lost their lives in this movement. That's no small sacrifice. And also, which just makes me angry is, you know, we are supposed to let the tyranny of this minority, the, 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 these folks who have these very rigid ideologies dictate our lives. And the answer, you know, that I kept coming back to was no. And so then the question was, well, Julie, what is it that you could help to do about that? What was it like when you reopened Dr. Tiller's Wichita Clinic? Oh, it was like a miracle. <laughs> huh? Why do you say that? Oh, it took about four years. Um, you know, it was pretty tough because people initially thought, oh, Julie, you open another clinic in Wichita, you're just inviting violence back into this community. But we were not the ones who perpetrated that violence. And I also felt that it was just morally wrong for us to take what these folks had uh, dreamt up for us and uh, in murdering Dr. Tiller and, you know, just sit down and take it that what that was not going to happen. And, and I hope I hope it would have made him proud. I hope he would have been happy. We'll be back after a break. After successfully reopening Dr. Tiller's clinic in Wichita, Julie kept going, looking for other places that needed abortion clinics. In Oklahoma, she opened the first new clinic since the 1970s. Then, in 2020, a colleague approached Julie and asked her to consider coming to Wyoming. At the time, there was only a single abortion clinic for the whole state, and that clinic only offered medication abortions. That meant that after 10 weeks of pregnancy— a woman was on her own. It took Julie a year to decide. When she did, she committed fully. She found a medical office in Casper, Wyoming. She started getting it ready. Even though by then it was clear the Supreme Court might be about to gut Roe v. Wade. And then came that fire. We talked about how the clinic 
was set on fire right as it was supposed to open. Can you tell me about the process of recovery from that? Did everything have to be ripped out inside? Like, was it burned? Oh, yes. So 100% of the ceiling and the flooring had to be stripped and all that was brand new. And 95% of, you know, the sheetrock, you know, was torn out. It It was taken down to the studs. So what we ended up with after the arson was a more intensive rebuild than when the property was first purchased. Uh, Fortunately, I I will say, you know, I was so afraid that our contractors were going to walk away. Hmm. You kept them. Yes, they stayed. And I I frankly, because I didn't know, and I was very nervous. (laughs) I, I, you know, it was to the point where I didn't even want to ask the question. (laughs) Uh, Like, will you stay and do this with me? Yeah. I did not want to ask them, but you were afraid to say no. Oh, yes. I mean, because we all had been through so much. And um, and also I think about them as contractors. They had done all this beautiful work to the building. And then it was their work that was destroyed. Um, you know, so that they had, you know, they were invested in this. Um, they said, yes, they would stay with us. And they did the second remodel. It wasn't just the physical hurdle of getting your clinic open again after the fire. It's just, it's amazing to me to think of the timeline because the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade came down just a couple months after the arson Mm -hmm. at your building. So you were racing to open this building before the Supreme Court ruled on abortion. The building is set on fire. You're having to start rebuilding. And in the middle of that, all of a sudden, boom. Roe v. Wade is overturned. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I can't imagine what it was like to have all those things happening at once. It was, <laughs> uh, well, stressful. It was disconcerting. Um, it did make me, you know, think twice. Julie was thinking twice partially because it was not clear what the legal status of abortion would be in Wyoming after Dobbs. The state had a trigger law that threatened to ban the procedure. Wyoming then became the first state in the country to ban abortion pills entirely. So Julie's organization, Wallspring Health Access, alongside other plaintiffs, filed lawsuits against those bans, all while Julie was trying to rebuild her clinic. Those lawsuits are still ongoing. But a judge has temporarily halted both bans, so abortion is still legal in Wyoming, for now. I mean, I never, I, I never like to operate in an overly confident way, but I did, I did feel that with the language in the state constitution, I, I just really felt in my my gut, my heart, that you know we were going to be able to make a case. And, you know, the judge would be able to see that that we were on the right side of the law here. Yeah. Can you explain about Wyoming's constitution? Because it really does have this unique provision about healthcare decision making that it seems to me that you and the other plaintiffs looked at and said, ha, this is useful for us. What was your approach? Well, and that's one of our arguments in the lawsuit is pointing to the provision in the Constitution that says 
adult Wyomingites are able to make their decisions freely about their health care without government interference. Seems pretty broad and also pretty straightforward. Yes. So does it explicitly call out abortion? No, but you know, it, it is not explicit on any level regarding, you know, healthcare treatments. Um, healthcare is healthcare. And so, you know, we felt that right there within the constitution, with that language alone, that we would have a really good case. Your Wyoming clinic is now finally open, right? Yes. We saw our first patient April 27th. You're offering all kinds of services, right? Not just abortion. Yes. Is that intentional? Like you're you're offering gender affirming care is my understanding, all kinds of things. Yes. We offer gender affirming care, um, you know, just general GYN visits, uh, family planning. So a, a wide array um, of visits. How do you think about day-to-day operations at the Wyoming Clinic, knowing you might have to stop providing abortion services pretty much whenever if the courts don't rule in your favor? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think about Wyoming the same way that I think about, thought about Oklahoma. You know, Oklahoma was a case where the clinic was open for six years before abortion was outlawed there. And so I think, you know, the same goes for Wyoming that, you know, if we can help even just one person or a hundred people or 200 people, whatever that number is, then, you know, I can't discount what kind of an impact that has or would have, you know, on a person's life. I just think that having that positive impact on people's lives, you know, even if it's for a year, two years, um, then it was worth it. Yeah. The police eventually apprehended the person who set fire to your clinic, right? Yes, uh, they apprehended her in, um, yeah, it was March of, of this year. I understand that she is pleading guilty. She'll be sentenced pretty soon, at least at the time we're talking. Yes. The woman who set fire to Julie's clinic, her name is Lorna Green. She was just a college student when she did it, and she claims to have acted alone. Security cameras caught Green breaking a window and pouring gas on the building before fleeing. After a reward was offered, the police got one tip after another that pointed to Green. Are you going to go to her sentencing? Yes, I, I will be, and I, I'm, I have a statement prepared. Um, we are asking for restitution. I have a victim impact statement. What do you most want her to know? Just that, you know, this, this is no way to solve a problem, a disagreement, you know, we, we, we all think differently, but to act in a violent manner because you think someone is wrong is an absolute crime. She's 22, the same age as my daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which I don't know. I guess having a daughter 22, it's maybe affected me more. I, but I, I'm very sad for her. I'm very sad for her that she is going to be spending her 20s and maybe she could get up to 20 years. Um, the sentence is, is five to 20. 
um, but definitely her 20s in prison. And just that that is also a loss of life. And to be so young and to think that you know so much about what is right and wrong. Um, the world is gray. We all operate our lives in the middle, <laughs> trying to make good decisions. And I, and I hope she can really figure that out as she serves her prison time. Do you feel like your clinic's safe now that she's in jail? No, no, I don't. No, because there could be just another person who wants to commit an act of violence. I am grateful that since the arson, we have not had any acts of violence, but we are vigilant. Julie, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, and um, it's been a pleasure. Julie Burkhart is the president of Wellspring Health Access. After Julie and I spoke, the woman who set fire to her Wyoming clinic was sentenced to five years in prison. That's the mandatory minimum in her plea deal. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you soon.